0: Welcome to the Career Guy Podcast,
1: a chance to talk with different people and share stories about their careers and career paths, giving you an insightful look at different careers that do exist. Here's your host, Mickey Horvath.
0: Today, I'm interviewing Ron Selahub. Ron is a journeyman, automotive, and heavy-duty mechanic. He has an array of certifications, including an Allison transmission and natural gas engine designation. In this interview, Ron takes us through his 40 years of working as a mechanic. He explains how he got into the automotive industry and how this industry has changed. There are some lessons in history here for sure. It is this change though, that led him to work in another industry, oil field equipment, which then eventually led him to get his heavy duty journeyman certification. This interview will cater to anyone that is interested in being a mechanic in all facets, automotive, heavy duty and oil fields. There's also a fruitful discussion on how apprenticeships work and how it applies to all the trades. Safety is also discussed as well. This is an eye-opening interview as Ron relates his vast experience and knowledge from working in a local garage to the Canadian military. With that, I would like to welcome Ron. So today I'm interviewing Ron Sellahub, and Ron and I go back quite a few years, I think over 40 years. And uh, we'll just leave it at that because we won't want to give away our age. Ron's got an interesting career. He's worked as a mechanic in all facets of being a mechanic. And I don't want to give away too much of the interview. I'm going to let him explain everything. Right now, I'd just like to welcome Ron. Well, thank you, Nick. I'm glad you joined me this afternoon. So you lived in Calgary, Alberta for a long time. And you live in Medicine Hat right now. Why don't you, if you'd like to, why don't you explain what it was like growing up? And sort of what got you into being a mechanic? How did
1: you start? Basically, what happened is we took automotives in high school with Bill yeah. Phipps. Yeah, I remember that. And it was uh, introductory automotive classes, and I enjoyed it. Actually, I didn't mind it. It wasn't my first love, but it was something that I enjoyed doing. Therefore, I got a part time job at Petro Canada Garage, and we were just pumping gas and selling oil and doing all the normal stuff you do in a garage back in the day. And then what eventually what ended up happening was they asked me if I wanted to start doing tire repairs and oil changes and various stuff around the shop cuz I guess I showed mechanical ability. So I started doing that and started learning how to do small repairs. And eventually the gentleman that ran the shop asked me if I'd want to apprentice in the shop when I finished my grade 12. So I said, I was young and didn't really have too much going on. I said, why not? So I started my apprenticeship at Can, and the gentleman was John Black. And it was good because it taught me a lot of different things and how to repair your own car, which was back in the day, we never had a lot of money to do that stuff. We did our own stuff. I think there was a few times we went up there and fixed my car in your garage. I remember that. So that's how it basically started the mechanical trade and working there. And like, unfortunately, that facility closed. They made a gas bar convenience store, I guess would be the proper terminology for it. And then I just moved on from there and started finishing off my apprenticeship, working at other shops to further my education and get my journeyman certificate. I worked for Esso for a little while and just a lot of other shops just to kind of get the hours in and get the work experience. Then finally, I did get my journeyman ticket and then I got an interprovincial ticket. Which means you finished the top seventy percent in my automotive. So then I'd been working for Nestle's service station as a journeyman mechanic for a while. It was up by my house in Northeast Calgary, and it was okay. It was it was fine. I mean, I'd been doing it for probably about five years, and I said, well, you know, I kind of want to do something else. I mean, I still like the mechanical side of it. I just the automotive side wasn't where I wanted to end my career on. So I was looking for opportunities to get out of the automotive and go more to bigger, heavier equipment. So therefore, I applied for a job at a company called Rostell Industries. And I got the interview right away, I should say. And they asked me if I want to come into the shop and, and take a look around and these big, large equipment, drilling rigs and some manufacturing company repairs various equipment for oil fields. So I took the job. It's a great company to work for. And it wasn't owned by Precision Drilling at the time. It was owned by a company called Tarot Industries. And I worked as a mechanic on the floor, but we we're fixing drilling rigs and stuff like that. And I didn't care doing that kind of work. It was okay, but it's not fine-tuned work. It's kind of like you have to take equipment to get it running, get out the field until the equipment comes back. It's a lot of long hours, get it going. And there wasn't a lot of structure as far as standards. You did what you can. They were very good. The equipment worked really well. There's really knowledgeable people, but I like to know that when I'm working on something that that we're going up there and we're building a piece of equipment to a certain spec. And that's what I enjoy doing. I like having those specs in my head. So an opportunity came in the company where they asked me if I'd want to work on blow preventers and I had never worked on them before. I'd seen them in shop and I said, yeah, okay, let's give this a try and see what that's like. Well, that was perfect because when you work on a blow preventer, everything is all spec'd and you can't go out of those specs. So it's exactly what I wanted to get into. I knew that we'd go up there and we'd take them apart. We'd measure everything all up. Everything had to fall within a certain range of clearances, which I became really good at because i so many apart. And then I re- started rebuilding a lot of them for rigs all over Alberta and Saskatchewan. We were very busy. And then what happened is Precision Drilling bought Rostell out. And all of a sudden there was an influx of money because Precision Drilling was the biggest drilling contractor in Canada. And they bought us because they wanted to build drilling rigs and just be exclusive to their own brand. So they had lots of rigs they wanted to build. They wanted the repair end so they could bring their equipment into a shop that they own and have total control of the quality going out the door. So that made perfect
0: sense. I just want to ask a couple of questions now because people that are listening to this show, want to understand what it entails to be a mechanic. So I just want to roll the hands of time back a little bit. So let's go back to when you were apprenticing as a mechanic, as an automotive mechanic. So anybody who's listening to the show that's interested in becoming a mechanic, what's entailed in becoming a mechanic? Like, what does that apprenticeship look like? If you could just describe that to us.
1: Sure. First of all, you want to get hands dirty, standing of electronics, especially nowadays, back when I took it, electronics was there, but not to the extent of what it is today. Lots of problem solving, you're going to be doing a lot of problem solving throughout your career because uh, the problems that you're fixing aren't necessary mechanical problems that, that are like brakes and stuff like that. A lot of the problems you might be fixing might be engineering issues with the vehicle.
0: Okay. I'm gearing at more. How does the schooling work with your hours? How does somebody get into something like that? Like, how does that actually work? I'm talking about the more fundamentals of working and going back to
1: school. How does that all work actually for you? Well, like you say, I was offered an apprenticeship to go into working in the shop at that time. So basically what happened is my employer went up there and we signed an agreement with the apprenticeship board. I would work for 10 months in the shop and then for two months I go to school. So the 10 months is your practicum and the two months is schooling. And you'd continue through that for four years for four years so you
0: do this every year every year you take two months off work and then you go to school for two months That's and so when you go to school for two months okay a couple of things again people that are listening to the show are probably very interested in this this is what they're probably going okay how do I become a mechanic or how do I get into the trades and how does it all work so when you actually go back to school who's paying you how, how do you get paid or do you get paid
1: Back in the day when I took it, you went up there and you had a subsidy from the government. It's like a training subsidy because they knew you weren't unemployed because you're going to go back to your job. It was just a grant they had. You'd go on unemployment, basically, and that's what the rate was. So you'd go on unemployment for about two months. and Then once you're done your two months, you go back to the company and you start working again and you start getting a normal paycheck. So when you go back, let's say
0: you've done your first year, you've worked for 10 months, you've gone to school for, for two months. And I'm, as, I'm assuming here in Alberta you would or Calgary, you would go to SAIT. Is that right? Correct, correct. Yeah, you're going to a technical school. So you go to school for two months. Now, when you come back out, you go back to the same shop to work. So you would get a raise then or something?
1: Yes. When you sign that contract with the apprenticeship board, there's uh, increments as you completed your schooling. You'd get regular increments on your wage. So, obviously, if you do your first year and then you go into your second, you'd see a nominal increase of maybe a dollar or two in your wage because you've now graduate to a second year apprentice. So, then you do this for
0: four years. I'm thinking that you did this at Petro Canada for a couple of years and you went to another shop or
1: something like that. Is that, is that what happened to you? Yeah, basically, that shop closed down. I believe I was about a second year at that time. And the nice thing about it back then, was even though my shop closed down, there's a lot of other shops that are open and looking to bring mechanics to their facility or their workplace. And so even though they knew we were shutting down, they would offer you jobs, or they knew exactly that this place shut down, people are going to be looking for work. And sometimes they'd come up and want to scoop a mechanic or two from that location because they need people.
0: So it is transferable between businesses or shops or companies. Oh, big time, big time. I I don't know if you would know this. I'm just going to ask, is it transferable from province
1: to province? Would you know that or? I don't know on the apprenticeship side because our apprenticeship is Alberta. uh, And I don't know what BC uses or anything like that. But once you get your journeyman ticket, you write an interprovincial ticket. It's a separate ticket that you write. And in that ticket, you have to get over 70% in. And then you can be a journeyman mechanic in any province other than Quebec.
0: Okay. So let's just break down this a little bit more further. So people do understand this. So you do this for four years. So for four years, you go, you work for 10 months, you go back to school for two months and I'm just putting this out there. It's just, every time you go back to school it's progressively harder. The schooling is getting a little bit more involved. You're learning a lot more about mechanics and whatnot. So when you go back to work, you're being given a lot more responsibility. Am I reading
1: that right? Oh, yeah. And when I took my first year of schooling, basically, uh, say, when I mean, they were starting class every two to three weeks, which was just a lot of classes, so getting into school was not ever an issue. But when you got to your fourth year, your last year, so many people were dropping out. They're only maybe doing eight classes a year in your fourth year.
0: So people do drop out of it. They don't make it all the way. So, okay. But nonetheless, we can get into that in a minute. You get into your fourth year and you complete your fourth year. So then you write what you call your journeyman ticket. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And after you write your journeyman ticket, then if you, if you want to work throughout Canada, then you write your interprovincial ticket. Is that right? That's right. You have the option if you want to run it. Okay. And you need to have 70% or more on that one.
1: That you want 70% or higher to get your interprovincial,
0: Then you can work anywhere in Canada, except for Quebec.
1: Yes. Perfect.
0: So essentially how somebody becomes a journeyman mechanic. To your knowledge, I'm just going to ask you, is the procedure pretty much the same right now or or has it changed or do you know?
1: I think there's uh, some options now where you can actually take all your schooling now in one lump for two years. So you'd go nonstop schooling for two years. And then after your two years, then you can put your time in. And then when you complete your hours, it's based off hours. Once you get all your hours in, that equivalates to four years worth of schooling, then you can be a journeyman. So you can do all your schooling right at the beginning if you want. And then you have to do all your hours, your practicum out in the shop. So
0: let's just stick with the automotive for a few more minutes here, because people that are listening to this interested in becoming an automotive mechanic, so. I know this is way back in the 90s that you were doing this and cars have changed a lot and we'll just get into that in a minute but what's it like being a mechanic if you could just describe it do you buy your own tools or do the the shops that you work at do they supply tools or how does it all actually work if you could just sort of break that down
1: well you're absolutely right tool cost is a major factor in becoming a mechanic a lot of shops do not buy tools for you they'll have Specific tools that are specific to the make and models that they have to have there, but a lot of mechanical you have to bring all your tools in. And there's especially tools that the shop buy for the mechanics to use. Some of the computer programming and stuff like that nowadays, they buy that just because like if you work at a dealership, their programming is a lot better than what you'd get from, from someone like Snap on or something like that.
0: How much do you spend on tools i mean i've heard some pretty outrageous
1: numbers how much did you spend on tools well you're always buying tools and you never not buy tools and just because the cars are evolved they're changing their new systems are coming out so you're always buying tools i'd say on average probably in the course of a year i'd probably spend five thousand dollars and that's just
0: money just coming out of
1: your pocket that's
0: just basically that's just the way it works
1: Yeah, it's the way it works. A lot of the automotive companies, they expect you to walk in with a certain amount of tools in order to do the job. And then especially tools that are specific to their brand, they may supply some of those things. But most mechanics, especially when you start getting to the journeyman side of it, you work in a system called flat rate, where you get paid on the job, not by a salary. So for you to have the tools to do the job, it just makes it that more efficient. Okay, let's talk about
0: that for a minute. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because that's an eye-opener as well. So how do most mechanics get paid now? You said flat rate. So what does flat rate actually mean? If you could just give us a bit of a synopsis on that.
1: Yeah, so basically what happens is generally when you get your journeyman ticket, most of the shops, because your wages are actually fairly high, they want to go onto a flat rate system. They don't pay you an hourly rate. So the flat rate system works off as a customer brings a vehicle in, and say you need a certain type of service done on it, there will be a book rate of say an hour to do that service and you get a portion of that hour. So basically what can happen is you can have good days when you make more than eight hours in a day and you're doing well as far as salary, but there's sometimes you get into those jobs that just are horrible and you don't make nothing that day because nothing goes right. Let's just clarify this. Let's say I
0: bring my car in and let's say we've got a, a Nissan Altima we need a brake job. So I'll bring it into Brasso Nissan or any Nissan dealership. So Nissan, the company itself has already said, this is how much the brake job is going to cost. Let's say I want a complete brake job on all four wheels. They're going to say, this is X number of dollars is going to cost. So then you, as the mechanic, you get a portion of that. Am I reading that right?
1: Yeah. So what they would do is like say on a front break job on your ultimate, they'd say up there, it's going to take you two hours to do it. So that's the book time that they're quoting the customer saying it's going to cost two hours to do it. So out of that two hours, I would have to get that job done within the two hour mark or less. If I'm getting it done less, I make more money because I can bring my next job in. So that's how it works. Basically, you got two hours to do this job and it's what it takes. That's all we're paying you. So when they say it's two hours, is that pretty accurate? Is that feasible or are they really pushing you pretty hard? That's feasible on a customer pay system. On a warranty issue, like if you got warranty, it's not very good for the mechanics. Mechanics don't
0: make really any money off warranty. In other words, if you're working for a dealership, which seems to be the biggest thing right now, as far as mechanics are concerned, because I've noticed myself, the the Ma and paw shops have slowly disappeared. So like the garage that you worked at, Petro Canada, they're all disappearing because I'm assuming they just can't keep up with the technology. Is that right?
1: I believe that should be part of the reason. I think the other thing too is people buy so many different types of cars, so it's pretty hard to be knowledgeable on every brand.
0: So now if you're working, let's say, for Nissan, I'm assuming that you become a Nissan expert.
1: Yes, because generally the people that work on Nissans will just be solely working on Nissan products. They go for schooling and, and Nissan will put them through courses so they can go up there and get very well versed on the product. Where when you're in the mom and pa shops, like you said, one day you could be working on a Nissan or one hour you could be working on a Nissan. Next thing you know, you might have a, a Lamborghini show up. And believe me, I've seen it happen. So there's a variety of cars that you could work on, it's on in a mom and pop shop. There's just no rhyme or reason. It's just anything comes to the door. So it's really hard to keep
0: up. Your last year that you were
1: working as a mechanic, what was your experience like? Because
0: obviously you left it and you said you went to a company called Rostell working on more oilfield equipment. And we'll get into that in a minute, but I just want to get a clear idea of what your experience in the last couple of years working in the automotive industry. What was that like? I was flat rate back
1: then. The problem with the flat rate system too is when the work orders get generated, they go through a service manager and then that service manager signs the work to the, to the mechanics. So the jobs you get can be factors on your service manager, what he gives you. So I ran into some problems back in the day where people were doing work through the course of the week. And then what happened is I like to work Saturday. So I'd come in Saturdays for myself, obviously, to make some spare money. But I ended up doing warranty work on Saturdays because people couldn't bring their cars in during the day. But they're other people's warranty work. So I wasn't making any money doing other people's work.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: Seems like you really frowned upon
0: warranty work. It sounds like it's really tough to make money that way.
1: Oh, yeah. When you work for a dealership, a customer pay would say to do your break job is maybe two hours. But under warranty, they only might give you 0.8 of an hour to do that break job. Why? Because the way they look at it is the company doesn't want to pay for stuff on warranty. And the only way they can save money is by slashing the rates down for the mechanics. So then I'm curious. I'm just going to pick at your brain a little bit here. So if you're bringing your car back on warranty work, is the workmanship going to be the same still? One of the ways they can do it is they have apprentices work on it. The apprentices will get a wage because that's within the apprenticeship agreement. They have to get a guaranteed wage usually. The journeyman mechanics don't have to get that because they're working flat rate. So the journeyman mechanics, depending on what the warranty issue is, they will go up there and maybe shy away from doing warranty work. And it might be done more by apprentices than journeymen. But it depends on the repair and service manager where he wants to sign that work to. Okay. So this is why you sort of got out
0: of the automotive side of things. And you sort of went into a company called Rostel. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I didn't like the way automotive was going. And I know now that even today, uh, a lot of these shops struggle with getting automotive mechanics. It's really? like... Hard to get people. There's a few shops I worked at. uh, I went back in automobile probably about eight, nine years ago just to get versed in it again. And I mean, I couldn't believe how many people they were bringing in from the Philippines. Half the shop were were from the Philippines. I couldn't believe it. There's probably about 30 mechanics there from the Philippines. Why is that? Is it just that cutthroat? Or I think what happens is when you get into a flat rate environment, You have to have the work feed you, but also I think what ends up happening is a lot of people don't really go into the automotive side anymore because it's very expensive. Like it's not cheap to buy tools. Your tools are expensive, When you do get that journeyman ticket. You think you're going to be making a lot of money and you do, you can make a lot of money in that industry. But what ends up happening is the flat rate is more geared for the shop, not for the tech. And you said...
0: Earlier, at the beginning of the interview, you indicated that it's getting a lot more electronic as well. It's getting away from the mechanical part. You want to elaborate a little bit on that, or could you?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, back in the day, we had points, condensers, and stuff like that. And I remember when high-energy ignition system and GMs were all baffled, how are we going to fix this stuff? And now that's nothing compared to what they have nowadays. But, yeah, there's way more computerized systems in play. I mean... I worked at BMW for a little while and I think at one time when I was working there, I think they had about 23 computers on a vehicle. And they all gotta to talk to each other on some of the systems. So they all have to connect to each other, talk to each other. So you end up getting a lot of weird problems from that. You get clashing of programs and oh it's just crazy stuff that happens. So before we get into
0: when you moved on to Rustell, if somebody wants to get into the automotive industry or is considering it, what, what kind of advice would you like to pass on to them or what have you learned or what do you know that you would pass on to somebody?
1: You have to have the love for cars. And I, I always did. I always loved driving cars, fast cars, always fun. You have to have that love. You have to somewhat be tech savvy because it's always changing. Your vehicles are changing just rapidly. You have to be willing to accept change because. Vehicles have changed so much in the last five years, you have to just be up on it. Okay. So any other final
0: thoughts that you'd like to just sort of pass on about the automotive industry?
1: Well, the automotive industry is going through some big changes right now with electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles. Okay. I have worked on those particular vehicles myself, but seeing the way they're all electric, I'm pretty sure you want to have a strong electrical background. Let's move on
0: to your other part of your career now, if we could. So you left automotive, then you went into the company called Rostel, which was an oil supply field company. Am I reading that right? Or did I hear that right?
1: Yes. Rostel was a manufacturing company and we manufactured drilling rigs, components, various equipment for the drilling sector. So you were a mechanic there. So what was your
0: role there? What kind of work did you do?
1: When I started off there, I was in the shop and I was working on the big drilling rigs here. We'd be building new drilling rigs, repairing the old drilling rigs and just various equipment, like heavy equipment, which I love working on heavy equipment. i have always bigger the better. I mean, it's usually more money and you have to be very, very particular in how you do it because there's so much money at stake. You can't have too many screw-ups because it's not like like a car you can have it all in your belt come off. It's going to cost you a tow bill, put a new belt on, you're out the door for 100 bucks but in heavy equipment heavy duty work let's say a belt comes off something simple as that well that's not sitting in your backyard that piece of equipment could be in Saskatchewan so now you actually have a serious road trip ahead and lots of money travel up there and do, do the repairs so it, it, it is a little differently on that side so yeah no know working at Ross that was good I mean I learned a ton of stuff there a lot of stuff that I never learned in the automotive sector first of all how do you find the transition that's a big
0: change from working on cars to working on oil field equipment. How did you make
1: that transition? Like- oh, it was a learning curve like I've never seen because like you say, in a car, if you have an oil, you go to the store, you buy an all you put it on. Well, it's not like that on the oil field. The oil field, you have to sometimes make your own parts. And we had a full machine shop, there; we would make our own parts. The equipment was totally different than automotive that we work on. Just the way things were retained together, it was just a different animal to learn. It sounds to me like you almost played a role of an engineer. A lot of times you are because a lot of this equipment, it's not really being mass produced in a sense that there's a hundred thousand Toyota Corollas on the ground or probably about a million of those things. A lot of these are you're building one of, you got 10 of them you're building. So you're always involving the design. So when you have failures, you have to say, okay, when this thing failed, what failed when, when you're building it? And even when you're putting it together, you have to have more wits about you because Well, sometimes the drawings are not right. I mean, sometimes things don't fit together right. You have to really be awake when you're doing it because it's so expensive. When this stuff fails, it's
0: catastrophic. So you're not just working by yourself. I'm thinking you're working with probably a couple of engineers or an engineer at least. When you said there's a full fledged machine shop, so I'm, I'm assuming there's machinists in there, welders. So I'm I'm sort of trying to put a picture together in my head, and if you could maybe just elaborate on that, I, I'm thinking that you're working with a bunch of other guys or ladies, and you're all putting this big oil rig and the pieces together. Is, is that right? Oh, exactly.
1: I mean, that particular place, we had welders, we had machinists, we had mechanics, we had boat boater mechanics. We had NTT, which is non-destructive testing people. We had engineers. We had engineer texts. We had draftsmen. We had a lot going on. Okay. So
0: let's just talk about the pay. First of all, you're getting an hourly rate or a salary. Am
1: I right about that? Because it can't be flat rate right here. Because it's so specific, we would be just getting an hourly rate. And there's tons of overtime too. Okay. So you started
0: working there and you basically started working in the shop you're just, I'm assuming that you're just learning as you're going type of thing. Is that right?
1: What would happen is because I was fairly new in the oil field, I'd be working with other people that are knowledgeable, working kind of under them. I'd be taking stuff apart and then they'd kind of show you what's going on and try to teach the basics of what's going on. So down the road, you can put it back together. So you're basically apprenticing again is what you're doing. Yeah, more or less. You're apprenticing with people that are very experienced and I've worked on that and I was lucky to have some pretty good mentors. How many years did you work there? Almost 15 years. 15 years.
0: So in that 15-year career span, how did your career goal take off? Because you just couldn't be just working on the shop floor your entire career there. You must have moved up the ladder a little bit or quite a bit.
1: Basically, when I started there, I was working as a mechanic on the floor, learning the ins and outs of drilling rigs. Working with a lot of well-seasoned individuals, which was super mill rights and just a lot of different trades. But I went from repairs onto blow preventers. And when I went to blow preventers, it's where I really excelled because just the equipment is very specific. You have to make sure that it's done 100% right. There is no failure on them, which I loved. And what I did is I memorized all the specifications in them, the clearances, seals in them. And that's over a period of time. So, I was working as a mechanic at that place probably for about four years. But then I went to blow prevention and I was lucky, really fortunate when I went to blow prevention, there was an individual that was one of my bosses and he was super knowledgeable. And I spent probably two, three years just taking his knowledge and he taught me a lot. And I was out in the field a lot when I was doing blow prevention, anywhere from the Red Deer to Saskatchewan. So, You'd go up there and you'd have a breakdown. You'd have to haul out there and bring your tools and your parts and all that stuff. And sometimes you're out there for 10 hours and sometimes you're out there for three days. There was just no rhyme or reason, depending on what the problem was. But towards the end, what happened is the office staff that would do the coatings for the repairs, they're struggling a little bit because the repairs are really in depth. Because when you coat a job, you're just not taking it apart and coating. You're coating the strip down of it and you have to machine it you have to weld it and all that has to be off quote and it was hard to find someone that could quote all those hours and do it so it's profitable okay i understand it's a pretty intricate thing i want to just ask you a couple basic questions
0: here again so people that are listening understand what's blow prevention what is that
1: actually a blow preventer is used on a drilling rig it goes right on the well right at the bottom of the rig and what that does, that controls the flow from your well. So basically, it's your safety valve.
0: So, in other words, it's an apparatus that goes on the drilling rig and it essentially controls the flow of the, of the oil that's coming up. Am I understanding that right? Absolutely right. It'd be oil, gas, whatever they find down there. So I'm assuming there's a lot to this valve or blow preventer. It's a pretty sophisticated mechanical device.
1: Well, I wouldn't say it's super sophisticated because there's a lot of hydraulics in it, but the components in there have to be very finely machined. And you have to really know the product very well in order to do proper repairs and rebuild them. They have to be rebuilt by law every three years. That's a lot.
0: And that's for safety, I'm, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, because you could lose your whole rig and people on it if it doesn't function
0: properly. So it's a pretty important job as well. So basically, you got put into this area and then you had somebody who was teaching you how to put these things together, how to troubleshoot them and how to take them apart. Am I right about that?
1: Yes. Basically, I moved into that area after I'd been in the mechanical side for a bit, which I didn't care about. But I like when I went to the blowout preventer side, I was just helping out there and then I just liked it. I liked doing the work. I liked the fine tuning of it. I loved the, how everything had to be, this is the spec, this is what we have to maintain. I just loved the, this is how we do it. And that worked out great for me because for me, it was always about quality work. Is that what you liked about it so much? Or what else did you like about it
0: so much? Your eyes sort of brighten up when you talk about this, cause I can see you talking. Aside from that, what, what else did you like about it so much?
1: Oh, geez. you get to know these rigs that are out in the field and when they're down and equipment's down, they're losing money and you have the leases in jeopardy for the simple is They're gone over on their days on the lease and they're calling you out and you're going there to save the day. And I wouldn't say you're saving the day, but you're going out to do a repair, get them up and run it. And it feels good when you've gone up there and took something and got it fixed and coming back home and it's job well done and they're back functioning again and gives you a good, good feeling.
0: There's a lot of reward with it. So I'm just trying to try to put things together. So you're working in the shop, but after you became proficient with this, that's when you were being sent out into the field to, to, repair these blow preventers. So, and with that, I'm assuming by just by what we described, because when a rig goes down, when this isn't working, the oil rig isn't working. So an oil company then potentially is losing money every hour that, that thing's not working. So there's a lot of pressure to get this thing back up and going. Is that right?
1: They'd be phoning my work truck every 10 minutes saying, when are you getting out here? When are you getting out here? We're stuck in the hole because there's so much can go wrong when the blow preventer doesn't work. It's a big problem. Some of those guys were phoning me in 15 minutes. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? So I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And what people don't realize is well, you're at home and let's like, say you work the full day and you get a call at nine o'clock at night while you've already worked 12 hours. So now you jump in your car, you go to the shop, load your tools up, got to get your parts. There's another hour and a half could be, and then you drive to Saskatchewan to go do it. So it could be some very long days. And you're not even sleeping at this point. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, the longest shift I've ever worked on a rig was 32 hours nonstop. How do you function? Well, or do you? Well, you do because I was younger. I mean, today I could never do that because I'm older, but back I was younger. and You go up there and you get the work done. It's The downtime is what hurts the company because there's a minimal charge out day for that rig. And if it's not running, but it's not just the downtime of that rig that costs money. It's also going over on your lease because you only have so many days you can be on that lease. So if you're over on your lease, then there's penalties assessed to the drilling company for being over on the lease. So it's a lot of money at stake.
0: You're also working against the climate. You could be working during the summertime when it's really hot, but you could also be working in the dead of winter when it's really cold.
1: You working weather conditions. You go out there in a the snow drift or a snowstorm, you're trying to get out there and you're on the highway and you now I've smashed a few trucks up that way because you can't see the roads, but you still got to get to the rig. So
0: this sounds to me like it was a really specialty type of work. So somebody who's interested in getting into this, how would they do that? What advice would you pass on to them about that? Probably to get
1: into that type of work would be more of a millwright ticket is what you'd want because that's going to give you your mechanical. And I got into because I had a automotive ticket, but the shop seen what I had and how I worked, and they thought I was very methodical. So they said, "Yeah, you'd do excellent over here," and that's where they put me. So you did
0: this for fifteen years. So obviously you left after fifteen years. So what got you to leave?
1: Well, basically, I'd worked on so much equipment out there. And when I left, I wasn't in the shop anymore. I was in management and I was managing five other departments. And I didn't want to be in management. I wanted to be the guy in the shop because I enjoyed the field work. But I was told that I had to go into magic because they had problems doing the coating and stuff like that. and because I knew the equipment so well. I could say, yeah, this many hours to do your build up for your welding, this many hours to do teardown, this many hours for machining. And I knew all that because I've been there for quite a while and I understood the processes of what it needed to go through. So then I was told to go on the management side, which I did. But management poses problems. It's got a lot of different things you have to deal with. Do you want to talk about the management role a little bit? What did you learn about that as far as working for a
0: uh, company like that and the role that you played as a manager there?
1: I learned a lot about some of the other different departments because what happened is I started running just blober vendor division. I had that just dialed in. We're, we're making good money on it. And then, of course, your boss sees that, and then he adds another department to you, which would be maybe handling tools, which is a massive department. So I do that, and then you're doing really good there. Why don't we throw another department at you? which was NDT, which is non-destructive testing department. So I was doing that, which I knew that department very well too, because I do my own crack repair and my equipment. And then they asked me if I wanted to run a cylinder department. So I said, yeah, I'm also to do it because I kind of knew the hydraulic side. So all of a sudden you're running four or five departments. It's like, oh my God, I mean, you're working like 14 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm like, This is crazy. So they'll keep pushing things on you. Is that what made you leave eventually? I got tired of working long hours. I mean, you're working seven days a week, minimum six days a week. Working 12 hours a day was a short shift. And you're working like that. I mean, after 15 years, it gets on to you. When I was in management, I was on call for everything. So it didn't matter that I wasn't just on call for blow preventers or the departments I looked after. I was on call for anything and everything. So they'd phone you for whatever. If it was a drawworks break, well, you had to figure that out. If there was a pump that failed, well, then you have to go up there and figure that out. And yeah, so there was some really long hours. It was crazy.
0: Okay, before we get on to your next phase of your life or your next part of your career, anybody who's interested in getting into this line of work, what did you learn from this segment of your life? Again, the question is, anybody who wants to get into this, what would you pass
1: on to them? Oil fields. Good. Obviously, there's uh, a lot of people looking for renewable energy, and I don't think oil field will ever go away. I mean, it'll it'll decrease somewhat, but at the end of the day, we're still going to have to heat our houses. We need plastics, which is from oil and gas. There's a lot of things that come out of oil and gas that people aren't even aware of. So I do think that oil and gas will always be there. Maybe not to the extent of what it is now, but if you're going to get into it, get a millwright ticket, and then you can possibly move into an oil uh, field-related job, but it's hard work. It's long hours. There's good pay, though. So you left Rostal. You left this. So where did you go next? I wanted to work for Finning Caterpillar. I already had my automotive ticket, my interprovincial there, and I wanted to do my heavy duty because heavy duty and automotive would tie together well. So I applied at Finning, and they accepted me, and I started working on my heavy duty ticket there in a division called Powered Systems. Power Systems, okay. So, and I loved it there. It's probably one of the best jobs I ever had in my life. Great equipment, quality second to none. They paid you to do it right. And they had no problem. If it took a little longer, they just wanted it right so that when I went on the field, that it worked the first time. So I love that concept. And like I said, I think they make some of the best equipment out there. So what are Power Systems? Power Systems basically is a division within finning and what it is, anything that attaches to an engine. So basically that'd be a generator, hydraulic pumps, over-centered clutches. Anything you can think of that an engine would be attached to is what you'd be working on. When You mentioned
0: Caterpillar to me. I think of bulldozers. I think of cranes. I think of all these other rigs that we see on the road. Would you be incorporated in working with those as well or?
1: That can be part of it, but where I work more on Industrial engines, the example, the Petro Canada building in Calgary has generators that are up on the top floor. And we had to go up there, you have to do the servicing, you have to work on that. And that's your backup power. So if the building ever went down, that's going to run your building and keep the lights on and everything running. That's interesting. I never even thought about that. So
0: it's diesel engines running these generators for these buildings as backup energy is what you're describing. So you worked in there. You're apprenticing as a mechanic there. So the procedure is the same thing as it was with your automotives. You worked for 10 months and you went back to school for two months. Would that be correct?
1: Because I already had my automotive certification, they gave me accredited towards the second year on my heavy duty because I've already had one trade ticket. So they gave me that one year free because I had so much experience in the automotive side. Okay. Between... Working in the automotive to heavy duty, did you see overlap at all? Oh yeah. Engine's to engine. They all more or less do the same thing other than fuel delivery is going to be a little different.
0: But in Caterpillar working with heavy duty, this is go back to the pay. Are you, I'm assuming because it's heavy duty and things are a little bit more complicated, even though you say an engine is an engine, are you being paid flat rate or is it more of a just a, going back to an hourly rate?
1: No, it's an hourly rate. And if you can go work for a finning caterpillar, that's one of the top places you can work in your life because that's your top pay, unless you go to some other country where we're overseas. But in Canada, they probably have the top wages.
0: For a heavy duty mechanic.
1: Yeah. Sounds like to me, like
0: you really liked working for that company. And how many
1: years did you work for that company? I worked there about three, four years. I liked it there a lot, but... Uh, what had happened is just the work kind of slowed down a bit from the economy. And so I went through three rounds of layoffs and finally I was the third round that had to go. So it was a union position. So basically, last one hired, first one fired is how it works there. Yeah, I, I loved working there and I plan on staying there the rest of my life, but that didn't work out that way.
0: Before we move on to your next phase of your life, anybody who wants to get into being a heavy duty mechanic, what advice
1: would you like to pass on to them? Well, much like automotive, it's the same kind of situation where you have to take that training as well. So I took the training with heavy duty through finning. And there's a couple of ways to do it. Go to school, like any other trade you could. But Caterpillar actually has a program in place where they want people and they'll train people, and you can set up under apprenticeship under them and go to schooling and learn. A lot of different things. And it's, the company is actually paying for your schooling. And that's what happened to me. My heavy duty training was paid by the company. That's interesting.
0: So you didn't have to jump through the hoops that you did with your automotive t- ticket when you were applying for your apprenticeship that way. But I'm interested in this. When you're apprenticing as a heavy duty mechanic and you get your journeyman, so let's say you do it for four years. In your case, it was three years because of your automotive. But when you get your journeyman ticket, do you do the same thing? Do you have to do an interprovincial so you can work throughout Canada? Or when you get your journeyman, can you just work anywhere in Canada?
1: So basically what would happen is, like you said, you'd write your your ticket just to get your heavy duty mechanics. And then you have the option to write your interprovincial. And if you choose not to do it, you'd only be good in Alberta. But if you do your interprovincial ticket, then you can be anywhere other than Quebec. So it's advantageous for you to write it just for the simple fact is, if you ever want to leave Alberta and go to BC, it's still applicable.
0: I'm just curious, and again, for people that are listening, when you're writing your interprovincial exam, is there a big difference between when you're writing your journeyman to your interprovincial? Is it a harder exam or less maybe, or is it pretty much the
1: same type of exam? It's different. An interprovincial exam is written by the provinces. So basically they'll put questions on the exam. That wouldn't be on your normal test. So example, I remember mine, mine had a lot to do with boats. I didn't know nothing about boats. We're living out, we're landlocked. But when I worked at Finning at Caterpillar, I supplied engines for tugboats. So I learned a lot about the makeup of a tugboat engine. We would actually ship it from our shop to wherever it needed to go because we were shipping stuff all over the world. So I learned a lot about that side, and your interprovincial, I always felt you can't study for it. It's knowledge. And depending on where you are on the scale of things, if you're very knowledgeable, you can pass it, but you, you can't study for it because you don't know what's on it because I think there's like four or five provinces that write for the interprovincial and you don't know what test you get. By what you're saying to me then,
0: I would say you really have to know your stuff to get an interprovincial.
1: You have to have a lot of good background, solid mechanical experience and be able to work out the questions in your mind to know what the answers are, because I know a lot of people did struggle writing it, but I was lucky when I wrote a lot of my tests, I could relate from my automotive side. So, oh yeah, I know this one. And I passed it. I was pretty happy about that because you can't study for the damn because you don't know where it's coming from. Another question, do you only get one shot or can you write it as many times as you want? I believe you have an option of rewriting it, I think one or two times, but I'm not 100% sure. Because usually when you write your interprovincial, you write it with possibly a class that's graduated. So you'll go into like a gym or something like that. They've just finished completing their fourth year. They're writing the journeyman or whatever they're writing. And then your interprovincial would be the next day or something like that. So at the time when I was doing it, you had to incorporate your test with a graduating class.
0: Any final thoughts on anybody who wants to get into being a heavy duty mechanic that you'd like to pass
1: on? Well, one thing, tools are expensive when you get into automotive. Well, when you get into heavy duty, it's bigger tools, a lot more money. <laughs> so so you have to be prepared to spend the money to go into, but the payoff's pretty good. A lot of your wages are higher than the automotive sector, and it's specialty work. So if you like working on big, heavy equipment, heavy duty is the way to go. So you got laid off from Caterpillar. What did you do after? Well, I did have a lot of education at that time and towards a later part of my career, probably after about 35, 40, I wasn't always chasing the money because when you're young, you're chasing the money. Now I was chasing the education because I knew that if I had good education, I could go into any role I wanted to. So I started working for different companies. I went back to oil and gas. It was still really busy. And I worked for a couple other companies called Interflow. And I was assembling oil tubing units, blenders. Oh, all kinds of oil field equipment. Big, heavy, expensive equipment. So you just sort of just meandered for a little while. Yeah, I kind of wanted to do something different. And the thing is, with my education, I never had a problem getting a job. And that's a thing. Is that when you have oil field experience, when you have a good general mechanical background, companies will tend to hire you just because you feel the the need they have. Because a lot of companies, because you're working on heavy equipment, big dollar items, they want very experienced people because they don't want to have you know stuff go wrong. It's very expensive very fast. But it's also wear and tear on the body too, is it not? Yeah that's one of the biggest problems now when i worked for fanning you take course on how to on longevity because they put so much money into you that they want to make sure they could get the money back out of you and how you preserve your body but you're absolutely right you're dealing with heavy equipment you're in uncomfortable spots and uh, you're working in extreme environments so with that did you get into any other management roles or anything like that I did go up there and I worked for Ingersoll Rand, they wanted me to come in and work on their compressor side. So I was doing that for a while and I was running the shop the field mechanics. So I was doing that and uh, that wasn't bad. I mean, I kind of was always been the guy that had, I like my hands on the tools. I'd rather put something together, know I fixed it or you get that real complex problem. and I said, yeah, I figured this baby out. And I've always been like that. If it's a complex problem. I don't want to be in it. So you're
0: obviously very mechanically inclined. You'd rather be out working with your hands than behind a desk. So did you get any other certifications? I mean, you said you were chasing the education more so than the money a few minutes ago. So what else did you do as far as your education was concerned?
1: Well, I also got a natural gas engine ticket, and I also went up and got an Allison transmission ticket. And I've been certified to work on the 9, they called 9K transmission. These are the massive units that are in frackers and stuff like that. So I think they're very expensive transmission. So I got a rebuilding ticket in that. I always chase education. Then there's probably some more tickets in there that I don't remember, but I probably have a few more.
0: Natural gas tickets.
1: You have me intrigued about that one. That sounds pretty unique. The natural gas engine ticket, basically when people run generators for facilities, instead of running them on diesel or gasoline they run them on gas therefore not gas at most buildings and they don't have to worry about refilling them and all that stuff so it's a different animal you have different issues with your engines that you would have on automotive and heavy duty so you have to learn a lot about those situations the other thing they teach you is you can run engines off methane so one time people were going up there and taking the dump and they drill holes into the dump and the methane coming out. You can run an engine and do power generation from sewer gas. Let's just take a step back. How do you get a natural gas ticket? How do you go about that? Because that sounds very unique. It is. Basically, I did it through finning. Whenever there was a course that would interest me, I'd go to my boss. and I want to take that course. He's like, well, do you, do you think you really want to take? Yeah, I want to take that. So I was always the first one to go up there and if something came up to you, yeah, I want to take that course. And that actually a little upset with me. They're like, well, why is Ron going? Because Ron wants to do it. I, I always, like I said, chase the education. And uh, I think it was really wise for me to take as many courses as I can because it just adds to your, your resume. Okay. So you got your natural gas ticket. Where did that
0: lead you to? Well, believe it or not, it led me to the base. To the base. We're, okay, what kind of base? Let's let's just be a little bit more clear to people because this is a neat part of your life. So I just really want to elaborate on this.
1: Yeah, so when I went at the base, they say I had these qualifications that are hard to get. It's a lot of schooling. It's about nine years schooling. And uh, the company that had the contract phoned me up and asked me if I wanted to come work at a military base. And I never thought of it. I never thought I'd ever work at a military base, but it intrigued me because... Why not, right? So I had three other job offers too. So it wasn't like I had no place to go. I just thought that'd be interesting. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, it took quite a while to get there because you have to go through a big security check. So it was about a month and a half before my security check finally came. And then I came and worked for him. It's called CFB Suffield, which is Canadian Force Base Suffield. So it's a little bit away from Medicine Hat. And I live in Medicine Hat and commute to Suffield. First of all, what do they do for a security check? What's entailed with that? It sounds pretty serious. It is basically a financial, a personal, and a worldwide security check. And they do that because of what's on the base and what you have access to and the buildings you go into. Because what I do, I'm in every building. I can go to any building I want and into the ammo compound, pretty well anywhere. So you don't know where you're going to be, but you have to have that security saying, you're not a crook, basically. Okay, fair enough. What's it like working on a base like that? Totally different than working in the private sector. I tell you, it was a hard thing to realize that when you work for the military, it's a little different animal. Private sector is always about money and stuff like that, but also it's also about being leaner and meaner. I find the base maybe not so much about money, but it's not always about leaner and meaner. Sometimes it's sometimes easier is what I find. I enjoy work. It's great, but it's a different working environment than I've ever been anywhere in my life. I
0: interviewed somebody last summer and they were involved with the U.S. military and they said it's a neat thing to work because you see a lot of things, a lot of neat toys, a lot of neat things that you would never see in in the private sector or anything like that. They say it's a pretty cool place to visit if you can.
1: Is that right? Oh yeah, I work right in the battle areas. So right where they're doing their battles, I'm usually right in the middle of it because of the equipment that i'm maintaining so if they're blowing stuff up we're probably only contractor that can get into a live round testing area in your position what does your average day look like the average day would be you come into work obviously you got to go through a security check they got checkpoints then you proceed to your building after you pass a checkpoint and then i have a truck i load all my stuff's in the truck i Get the information that I need. I actually was managing the whole generators out there. So I'd manage everything servicing, repairs, breakdowns, maintenance. Everything was all managed through myself. So at any rate, I'd get pretty busy at times, depending on what the breakdown Because a lot of people think that these generators are running backups. They don't. They're 24 seven. These engines run seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Taking your card, running it all the time at 1800 RPM. They're always running. There's a lot of
0: responsibility with that then to make sure that they are running all the time because that's what's generating power for the whole base.
1: It does it for their battle exercise. So what I look after runs their communications for their battle exercises. It'll generate their battle plans and also runs the oil field sites out there where people are working out there. It runs their 911 call center because that's how you communicate out there is by radio. Phones don't work out there very good. There's not a lot of cell towers out there. They can't put them on there. So it's critical that when it goes down, we lose generator out there. And basically a lot of my work is through the British military. The British are the ones on the base.
0: And you're there right now? Yeah, I'm currently employed. Anybody who'd want to follow a career sort of like what you have right now with the military, what would it take to get into something like that?
1: I think luck. I mean, I never thought I would get into a military base. I think it really comes back to your training. What people are looking for and and your tickets in order to get into a job like that, you, you have to have the training because you're looking after expensive equipment. And like I say, when one of these engines go down and you're in the middle of an exercise, it costs the British $1.5 million a day when you go down. So there's a lot of liability there so. You don't go down. That's the basic thing. You do whatever you can do to get it up and running. So
0: you've had quite the extensive career. You've gone from working at a Petro Canada station, working on cars. You've worked in other dealerships or other automotive places. You've gone from that to working at Rostell, working on oil field equipment. And from that, you went on to finning, working on Caterpillar engines. And that's where you got your heavy duty mechanics ticket as well. Not to mention your natural gas ticket from that. you worked at uh, a couple of other places. you worked at, I think, Volkerstein. Volkerstein. And you got onto the military base. You've had quite the extensive career as far as being a mechanic is concerned. I've asked you throughout this whole interview for a couple of key points and things that you want to pass on to people. But any final thoughts you'd like to pass on to anybody that's, that's considering a career as a mechanic or a heavy-duty mechanic, or they just want to get into trades? Would you like to pass on to anybody?
1: Well... I would like to pass on that when you go to any trade, doesn't matter if it's mechanical, plumbing, anything. It's about longevity in your trade. I've seen the plumber on the base haul water tanks and his back is screwed. And the guy is 40 years old. and He's got another 20 some odd years to go before he can retire. And I don't know if he's going to make it, but it's about longevity in your trade. And when you're younger and you're bulletproof and you have to sit back and look back and say, hey, you know what? maybe jumping down off this piece of equipment is going to damage my legs or maybe i should take the step that's there or the ladder that's there instead of jumping from four feet down onto a cement floor because when you're 25 30 years old it doesn't affect you but when you start hitting that 50 year old mark you start feeling it
0: so that would be the biggest thing you'd pass on that that's true i mean as we age and i actually put a blog about that that should be one of your key things about a career and career change is look at your health first, because once your health starts to, to deteriorate, you got to make sure um, that you're healthy. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot of people misunderstand the thing about the trades. It's physical. So you have to work smarter, I think is the key thing to longevity. Would that be right?
1: Oh yeah. But that usually doesn't happen until you're 40 years old and you start to feel the pain in your body from what you've done when you are younger. I mean, I'm in a situation right now where I'm told that I'd sustain an injury. And uh, they're telling me it's career ending. So I'm thinking, okay, what do you do at 59 years old? Yeah. It's tough to change careers at that point,
0: but is there anything that you could have did that could have prevented that?
1: I've been physio for five months here now, and I've had a lot of time to reflect on what, what's happened with my injury. And I'd love to say I know what to stay away from mechanically. I've been there. I've seen a lot of accidents in my career. And so I know what to stay away. The injury I sustained was just from rough terrain and something I never imagined could have happened. I had no control over it. It's just the situation, but it wasn't like I did something that wasn't proper. It just happened and you go from there. And now you're looking at pretty well a life-changing situation where you can't do what you like to do. You said
0: when you went to Caterpillar, you you took a course on longevity. is that, is that about, you know, just taking care of your body and just working smartly? Is that what that was all about?
1: Basically, jumping down from trailers and not using the handrails and the ladders. And like I said, the reason they taught it was more so because Caterpillar puts $100,000 into techs. That's how much training they put into their mechanics. And of course, they want to see that training benefit them so that you're there till you're 65 years old. So they put all that money to you and they want to see a payout on that training and not have you hurt or laid up or possibly ending your career. So they do that training for longevity so that they can keep you around longer. In your mind, with your 30 plus years, maybe
0: 40 plus years working in the mechanical industry, from cars to heavy duty and whatnot, do you think work sites have become safer and you're keeping that in mind with longevity and whatnot? Do you think that's being taught to the newer generations coming
1: up? Generally, yes, because safety pays nowadays, where if people are getting hurt and you're losing revenue, you have to somehow make up that employee that's injured. But I find also there's a cost of safety that a lot of companies don't want to absorb because they do the bare minimum just to pass the, the minimum requirements. But there's other companies that take it to the nth degree, which those are the companies I like to work for because I've seen some nasty instances in my life and some serious injuries. And when you see stuff like that, until you're there and you see it with your eyes and, and you never forget it, you never forget someone getting crushed. You never get yelling, yell and scream. The guy's life changed in a matter of seconds.
0: So there's a dark side to the trades basically is what you're saying.
1: Oh, yeah, depending on which trade you're going into. But yeah, there's dangers in any trade. And uh, I think some maybe a little bit more than others just because of what you're working with. But when you see those incidents, you see those people get hurt, you know that they'll never walk again. And you know that. And uh, you're in a situation where you have to administer first aid to somebody that's, that's there. You never forget that. You never forget those scenarios. It's like it happened yesterday.
0: So that'd be a big thing maybe to the newer generations is people like you that that are really well-versed and experienced. When you're saying to a younger apprentice going, well, do this because it's pretty dangerous the way you're doing it, the younger generation should definitely listen to people like you.
1: I think it's just experience and being in the workplace for such a long time and working in heavy industries, I, I don't say you have to listen to me, but you have to make sure you're aware of all the procedures. There's a reason why they put all these safety procedures in place. And it's not because companies want to go up there, and spend a bunch of money, and do a bunch of paperwork. They're putting this stuff in place so that it's keeping employees safe. I know no one wants to fill out JSAs. No one wants to fill out That's I understand. It. But taking that minute, looking at the job, understanding what the hazards are, that could be life-changing. That could, that could save your life. On a final note though, any other
0: tidbits that you like to pass on to anybody that's considering a career as a mechanic or a heavy duty mechanic that wants to get into, maybe wants to follow a path that you sort of did or?
1: Well, I think at this particular path I took, it's been enjoyable. I haven't regretted ever taking it. There's lots of work. Even myself being off now, I get job offers sent to me all the time. It's not uncommon. And it's just because I think there's not a lot of people doing it anymore. I think a lot of people would maybe do something else other than this trade. There's a lot of opportunity. And if you're good and you know what you're doing, the sky's the limit. And I've talked to other people at WCB and talked to some of When people put gasoline in the car, they don't understand where it comes from. They just take it for granted. It's at the pump. They don't realize that someone had to drill that well, someone had to refine it. And eventually through the process, it gets to your gas station and you pump it in. So when you know the course of events for it to get to the point where you can pump it in your gas, it touched a few people's hands along. I think a lot of us take it for granted.
0: When the heat comes on our house, even though we complain about the fact that we got a big gas bill to heat our house, especially in December and early part of January. But yeah, when that furnace fires up, I mean, that gas, the power... To generate all that heat, it, it comes from somewhere. That's true. I mean, I think we just take it for granted.
1: Well, it's like so much. It's like even the house that you live in, some trade person built it. Partners, people doing cribbing. I mean, there's so much HVAC in there doing your furnace. There's so trades out there that go to manufacture some that people don't, don't, oh, it's a house, but they don't realize what's all involved in it.
0: I, I appreciate it because we live in an inner city. So they're turning down a lot of these older houses and I see all these newer houses being popped up and you see all the people that are involved from the point where they dig the hole in the ground to the cribbing. And then the guys come in and pour the cement. And then the guy comes in and roughs in the plumbing and the electrical. And then the framing slowly starts. And then from the framing, the electricians and the plumbers come in and pull in the plumbing and the electrical for that. And then they start putting up the boards for the walls and the drywallers come in. And it just goes on and on and on. What I've noticed, it's, depending upon the house, it's about 18 months. But yeah, you always see people coming and going out of that house for about 18 months. There's
1: so much trades involved in just general house that when you get into some of these bigger projects like let's say you know they're talking about building a new coliseum in calgary can you imagine what that's like just crazy okay
0: well with that i'd like to thank ron sellehub this afternoon for this interview i think anybody who's interested in getting to the trades especially the mechanical trades will definitely find this beneficial thanks so much for your time
1: well thank you mickey i appreciate uh, seeing you again i appreciate you spending time and Finding that my life has been interesting because, you know, I just do my thing. It's been a long time and hopefully if I can get up to Calgary, we can get together. That'd be great. Okay. okay, Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Okay, Max.
0: Okay. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Talk to you later.
0: Okay. Bye for now. Thanks. I would like to thank Ron for that insightful, informative, thought-provoking, and eye-opening interview regarding his career as a mechanic. Some of the key takeaways are, Ron did go through and describe how the apprenticeships work in Alberta and throughout Canada. He also described how the automotive industry has changed throughout his career. Cars have gone through a huge revelation. The way mechanics get paid has changed as well. He talks about the pros and the cons of the flat rate system. After a number of years, Ron left the automotive industry and moved his career into another industry oil field equipment he painted a picture of what it is like to work in this industry long hours and heavy work but the pay is good his expertise was in blow preventers we got a good lesson in what they are and what they do he left this then eventually ended up finning caterpillar this is where he got his heavy duty ticket among many other certifications, including his natural gas engine ticket. Ron made it clear that Finning was the best company he had worked for. They took pride in their employees by ensuring that they were paid well and trained properly. Due to the downturn, Ron left Finning. And after a number of years, he was approached by the Canadian military to run their natural gas engine generators. Ron made it clear that he changed the education, which is what made him stand out. And this is good advice. Do not be afraid to learn more. It is this training though, and his years of experience that made him stick out and why he was approached by the military and why he's still working there. Other tips and advice from Ron are, take care of your health and body. It will pay off in the long run. Safety is paramount. There are lots of opportunities in the trade, especially in mechanical, where he worked. The sky is the limit, as he puts it. Again, with that, I would like to give a huge thanks to Ron. Please tune in for the next episode of The Career Guy, where I will be interviewing Gino Acquero. Gino has worked in law enforcement as a detective, also as an instructor in a community college. He's also a writer, he owns a gym, and is a football coach as well. This will definitely be a good interview. Very informative. For more information on other interviews and blogs, check out The Career Guy website, www.thecareerguy.ca. And thanks for listening.